Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we are actually continuing in our series titled Recovering Discipleship, Recovering Discipleship. And last week I spoke on how uh, worship is actually one of the primary ways we experience discipleship as followers of Jesus Christ. It's Sunday worship, right? The, what we do together for an hour, hour and a half, week in, week out, that this is not just um, a, a routine that we have as Christians, and then we break off for real discipleship in small groups or real discipleship on a Wednesday night class. No, actually, God has designed for Sunday worship the gathering of the body of Christ to actually be the primary, primary place where we experience and express discipleship as followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, today's message is a continuation of uh, last week's message on worship, and I, and I want to particularly unpack the different elements uh, in worship that make it gospel-shaped, okay? that make it gospel-shaped, uh, that make it so formative and powerful for us. And now, before I get into the message, I want to remind us of three of the key building blocks. There are three key building blocks uh, that I'm referring to over and over again throughout this series as we talk about discipleship. As we talk about recovering it, uh, there's three main ideas. And the first key is this, that discipleship is a direction, not a destination, okay? Discipleship is a direction, not a destination. Again, it's not something you and I accomplish by reading a book or taking a class or meeting with somebody one-on-one for eight weeks straight. Those things are great. They're helpful, okay? Uh, But here at All Nations, we see those as on-ramps to discipleship. They are not... The, the whole package. They are not the completion. They are not the arrival of discipleship. Um, we have to realize that discipleship is an ongoing journey, that it's an ongoing direction that moves us towards loving God and loving others the way Jesus has modeled for us. And so it's a direction, not a destination. The second key is this, that you and I as disciples, okay, if we want to experience transformation, we have to realize that we are not just what we think. Okay, we're more than just minds. Okay? We're actually what we love. Okay? We, we are what we love. Discipleship is not merely about gaining more knowledge and information about Jesus and doctrines and Christianity. In fact, our hearts are the real core of who we are. And so the real work of discipleship, the real journey of discipleship is renewing our hearts and reshaping the things that we love to imitate the things that Jesus loved that the passions that we have, that the desires that we have would imitate the passions and desires of our Lord Jesus Christ. The third key is this. The way we connect what we know and what we love is through habits of grace. Okay, we've all experienced that disconnect. Like we know we should do something, but we just don't do it. And we actually don't want to. And so there's this this great divide between our thoughts, our knowledge, our minds, and our hearts, and our desires, and our passions. How do we connect the two? Right? And the answer is actually uh, through habits of grace. God knows that you and I, we are creatures of habit. In fact, he's made us this way. And to help shape our hearts, God has given us things called spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines that, that he wants us to practice, repeat, and incorporate in our lives so that we might become the kind of people that he has created us to be. People who love God and love others in a way that Jesus does. God uses spiritual disciplines. He uses habits to help connect our minds and our hearts, okay? The things that we know we ought to do, 
and the things that we actually love to do and desire to do. And habits of grace, these spiritual disciplines help us there. Now, I'm going to use an old churchy word called liturgy. Okay, liturgy. The, the millennials are probably like, I know lit. I just don't know liturgy, right? <laughs> but um, this sermon's not going to be lit, so uh, it's going to be liturgical. Uh, so we're going to use this word throughout this service. And liturgy is not something that simply takes place in Christian worship. We actually experience liturgy all the time. In the broadest sense, liturgies are simply forms and customs and habits we practice in life. For example, there is a birthday liturgy. When it's somebody's birthday, someone brings a cake, we all sing a song, and the birthday boy or girl makes a wish, blows out the candles, and and that is the birthday liturgy. We all know how to do it, right? When someone gets married, there's there's a wedding liturgy, right? People bring gifts, vows are made, rings are exchanged, kisses are given. Oh, like, you know, every time people just ching of the glasses, right? And, and those things happen and so on and so forth. So we're familiar with these patterns and customs all throughout our lives. And there's a surprising thing about liturgy. They really do form us, okay? They, these liturgies really do shape us. They create expectations. If it is your birthday, and no one gives you presents, you will be upset. You will be destitute. I remember it was Mother's Day, and I did nothing for my mom when I was in junior high, and she was really upset. I mean, she was fuming. And I was like, I was like, I was person, I was like, what's the big deal? Like, every day is Mother's Day, right? <laughs> you know, and, and that, I know, terrible son. <laughs> terrible son, okay? Um, but why, you know, but, but she expected her sons to do something loving, and, and, and to show gratitude for her on Mother's Day. There's an expectation that liturgy actually builds in us, whether it's birthdays, whether it's you know, um, Mother's Day, Father's Day, things like that. Liturgy affirms relationships. So not only creates expectation, it affirms relationships. It's Valentine's Day. And so I am going to do something nice and romantic, not for all the women at All Nations, Right? There's only one woman here at this church that I will do something kind and romantic towards, and that's my wife. Why? Because I have a covenant marriage relationship with my wife, and so Valentine's Day means something. It creates uh, expectations, and it affirms special relationships. Okay? The third thing that liturgy does is um, they reflect our values. Okay? The things that you value, you will do over and over again. Okay? Um, if hygiene is really, really important, you will wash your hands before and after everything, right? Not just meals, but, but bathrooms and, and shaking other people's hands and all of that stuff. That's a, that's a value for you. Parents who care about quality time okay, with their children uh, often will read them a bedtime story before they sleep. They'll say, this matters to me. I, I, I want to read to my kids, Right? I want to spend time with them so even though I am exhausted at the end of a 12-hour day, I will carve out time to hold my child and read to them. And that becomes a liturgy you do every night for years on end until they become teenagers and they're too cool for you. Right? But it reflects your values. Do you guys see that? And now if you think about that, you realize liturgy really matters. They really matter. They create expectations. They affirm relationships. They reflect our values. That is powerful stuff. And in our message today, I'm going to answer three questions. Okay? First, as we talk about liturgy and worship, I want to answer, why do we need it? Okay? 
A lot of people think, man, worship, why, why can't it just be more free? Why can't worship just be more spontaneous? Why are you guys so kind of like structured and formal? Why do we need liturgy? Second question is, what does liturgy accomplish then? What does liturgy accomplish in worship? And finally, how does our liturgy fit with this, with this vision of discipleship, right, at all nations? And does liturgy stifle evangelism, okay? If we are liturgical, are we now forsaking people who are unchurched and dechurched because we're just suddenly doing church for ourselves? And, and I want to answer uh, those questions. So first, why do we need liturgy in worship? If you open your bulletin, okay, you'll see that we have a liturgy or an order of worship. It's on the inside, left side column. And if you don't have a bulletin and you would like one, you can just kind of raise your hand halfway, not too high, because you'll bring too much attention to yourself. Um, but you'll see that we have an, a liturgy. We have an order of worship. And you can take a quick look over those elements. I'm going to unpack them in detail a little bit later. But here at All Nations, we are a Reformed church. And, and our theology and our history uh, is expressed in worship. What it means to be reformed is that it means that we believe that our worship should reflect the scriptures, it should reflect the Bible, and invite us in to the story of the gospel each week. Our worship is gospel-shaped, okay? It's intentionally gospel-shaped, okay? Worship is not about us just telling our stories, and it's not about us just treating Jesus like a product, promising life enhancements. Worship is about remembering the story of God and how he, out of love, has reconciled us to himself by the good news of Jesus Christ. We celebrate this. We proclaim this. We experience this each week. The, the scriptures call us to, to boast, to boast in the cross, okay? Not in ourselves, not in our accomplishments, not even in our own stories, but to make much of Christ and the cross. And we want to take that seriously and literally in our worship service, to boast of the cross. Now, if you visited other churches, you'll quickly notice that not all churches practice this kind of liturgy. Some churches start off with a dramatic video. I once uh, went to a service in Orange County. The entire service was like a 45-minute kind of documentary uh, that their church filmed. I'm sure they don't do that every week, but that was just the one week I went there and I judged them. Um, <laughs> Some churches start off with dramatic videos. Other churches start off with these high-energy songs to kind of like set the vibe, create this kind of atmosphere. Many churches don't have things like a confession of sin or an assurance of pardon. Some churches only take communion a couple times a year. Perhaps it's like Good Friday, and, and that's pretty much it. We here at All Nations, we take communion once a month on the last Sunday of each month. I know of churches who like to open their services with fun pop songs from artists like U2, Coldplay, Bruno Mars. I literally watched a service begin okay, with a Van Halen song. I know that's not that hip and pop anymore, but uh, this was like the Bible Belt in the South. And so for them, they're like Van Halen, like rock on. And, and there was a two-minute, kid you not, two-minute guitar solo where the lead guitarist was a shredding and doing the Van Halen solo to the note, and I was amazed, right? <laughs> this guy was awesome, right? But I was also confused. I was like, well, this is church. Why is Van Halen, what is Van Halen doing in church? And so I asked the leader from that church, I was like, why do you guys do this? 
Isn't that a little, a little weird? And, and he said with genuine passion, okay, with genuine conviction, he said that our desire here at this church is to make a connection with non-believers. We want to make non-believers feel welcome here. We are all about reaching the unchurched. And so we play Van Halen and Kelly Clarkson, Taylor Swift, you too, to help us make a connection, right? All because they want to be relevant. All because they want to be relevant. Now, um, man, it's hard because I don't want to be up here and like be a hater, um, but there are parts of this sermon that are going to be polemical because I do believe, I do believe that, that God has called us not just to worship him, but in his scriptures, he's also taught us and instructed us on how to worship him. I'm going to talk about that in, in a couple moments. And so uh, I, I don't want to come off like too much like a hater, um, but I'm trying to be faithful to the scriptures. And I am preaching out of uh, my personal convictions and out of the conviction of our reformed heritage. Now, in the book of Judges, there's a refrain that echoes throughout it. Okay, the book of Judges, if you've ever read it, you're probably familiar with this, 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 this refrain. And, and I think we need to consider it when it comes to how we worship. Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there, were, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges is sometimes called the dark book of the Bible, which tells the story of Israel's repeated sin and rebellion from God. They would fall into idolatry. They would sin. They would rebel from God, and a, and a neighboring country would conquer them and oppress them, and then God would have to raise up a judge, a judge like Samson, a judge like Gideon, a, a judge like Deborah to kind of rescue the people, and they would be thankful to God and worship him and then fall right back into sin, idolatry, and rebellion. It's a cycle. It's a vicious cycle, and the reason why they kept falling in this cycle is because everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They didn't have an earthly king, but that wasn't actually a satisfactory excuse. They had the word of God, and they refused to submit and obey and follow after God's word. They chose to go their own way. Why? Why did they do this? It wasn't out of ignorance. It was because they were convinced that they had a better way they had convinced themselves and convinced one another that they knew a better way to worship, a better way to raise their children, a better way to, 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 to govern their nation than the ways of God. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the narrative of Judges. That was the sin of Israel during that time. You see, friends, it's not enough for churches to agree that worship is powerful, we all, we all agree on that. The Van Halen Church will agree on that, right? It's not even enough for Christians to agree that God cares about worship. Yes, of course, God cares about worship. All the churches will say, about, say yes to that. We need to have the courage and wisdom to ask these two questions. Does God care about how you worship? Not just that you worship, but does God care about how you worship? And if he does care, has he taught us? how to worship, okay? Has he taught us how to worship? If you ask any parent here, say, what, what are some of the most important values in your life, okay? 
Or what are your, some of your most cherished hobbies? What are some of the most cherished traditions that you want to pass on to your children, the next generation, to leave as a legacy? They'll list a couple of things. And if they really care about them, they won't just tell their kids to respect your parents and be good to your siblings and, 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 and be an honest person and, and be generous and whatever. You'll model that for them. Parents will teach their children, not just tell their children to be a certain way. They'll teach their, they'll, their children on how to become the kind of people that, that they long for them to be. Brothers and sisters, God is the same way. He doesn't just call us to worship. He teaches us in the scriptures how to worship him. And if you look at the scriptures, you'll clearly see that in the Old and New Testaments. That he instructs his people not only to worship, but how to worship. Not with strange fire, not with man-made religion, but spirit and in truth. God does care about how we worship. Just read through the Old Testament, the story of the building of the temple. God didn't just tell Israel, build me a temple, do your best. No, God was so detailed on the size, on the materials, on the architecture, the design to every detail. God instructed Israel on how to build the temple and how to worship him. He does care how we worship, and he has taught us in the scriptures how to worship him. The question is, will we listen? Do we care? Will we abide? Or will we just figure it out on our own? Because we have our own expressions of how we want to worship God. Unfortunately, many modern churches have eschewed this reality. They've decided that it's more important to be relevant. It's more important to be creative. It's more important to be engaging and inspiring than it is to be confessional, liturgical, and biblical. In the 90s, there was a popular movement called the seeker-sensitive movement, the church model and and the philosophy of being seeker-sensitive, and it gave birth to the modern megachurch. Now, what was really admirable about the seeker-sensitive movement was they really cared about unchurched people. They really had a passion for evangelism. They really wanted to see people who didn't know Jesus come and meet Jesus and and, and receive him. It was all about reaching non-believers, and and that's truly a great passion. But these leaders of these seeker-sensitive churches, they decided that in order to reach unchurched people, the church needed to feel less churchy. Does that make sense? Like the reason why people aren't coming to church is because we feel too much like a church. So we need to deconstruct some of these things. We need to kind of like get rid of some of these things. So they remove things like the call to worship. I mean, who wants to start a gathering with a reading of scripture? It's more dynamic to start with a song. It's more engaging to start with media. Not just open your Bibles to Psalm 92. May God bless the reading of his word. They remove the confession of sin. Because no one wanted to come to church each week and go through a guilt trip. No one wanted to be condemned for their sins. And in place of those things, they tried to capture the coolness of a coffee shop, the convenience of a mall, and the thrill of a concert, all to get unchurched people into their churches. But brothers and sisters, I believe we need liturgy. I believe God calls us to liturgy. We need it because we're not only called to worship God, but to do so according to his word. And his word commands us to read the scriptures together, publicly, 
as the body of Christ, to, to preach the word faithfully as the people of God, 1 Timothy 4. His word commands us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together, Colossians 3, to confess our sins to God and to one another and to remember the promises of God, 1 John chapter 1, to observe the sacrament of communion together in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there are many more verses on corporate worship, God's design, God's call, God's instruction over how we are to worship him. This leads us to our second question, then what does liturgy accomplish? What does it accomplish? What does it actually do? What does it actually do in worship? Marva Dawn, an author who has written extensively on worship, uh, writes this, and it's going to go up on the screen. This is what Marva Dawn writes. The whole point of liturgical lines and rituals is to create a powerful environment of God-centeredness. Right? That's why we do liturgy. That's why we need liturgy. That's the goal that we are trying to accomplish, to, cre- to create a powerful environment of God-centeredness. I love that. We desperately need this in our lives because so much of our culture promotes self-centeredness, right? Television, the internet, social media, right? Our precious smartphones, they all treat us as consumers with targeted ads trying to get our attention and satisfy our wants. James Smith, the theologian I've been quoting throughout this series, he calls the smartphone this ego amplification device, okay, where everything is centered around you and it's magnified, okay? Everything is centered around you and it's magnified. If you like something, what do you do? Right, double tap. If you don't like something and you get bored, you are bored with it. It could be great content. It could be a great article, a great video, but you're like, "Ah, I'm kind of bored. Swipe right. You can even be bored with a person, unimpressed with a person, swipe right, right? Man, something's really interesting. You want to look at it longer? You want to focus in and detail? Pinch, zoom, right? The world is at your fingertips, right? You can even go to a great uh, website like gospelcoalition.com, but even then, that whole website is at your mercy. You choose what you want to read. You choose what you want to watch, right? These are ego amplification devices, okay? They really just dial in to our self-centeredness. Buy what you want. Watch what you want. Connect with who you want. It's all about us. We are already by nature self-centered, but what our culture does, right, is amplify our self-centeredness and make us more and more consumeristic. So what do we need? When we come to church and gather as the people of God, we desperately need liberation from that narrative. We desperately need need liberation from that worldview, from our self-centeredness. And we need the opportunity to be ushered towards God-centeredness. We need reminders to lift our eyes off of ourselves, off of this world, to lift them up to Christ. To look to him. 
And in the practice of biblical reformed worship, there are eight principles we should follow. This comes out of one of the worship handbooks that our denomination offers. And there are eight just general principles. They're not exhaustive, but I found them to be really helpful. I'm going to go through some of these quickly and really lay into some of the others. And so as we're trying to establish God-centered biblical worship, what are some principles? First, biblical. That's the first one. And I've already spoken at great length on this, but I'd like to share one more thing. It means that we should focus our primary attention where the Bible does, okay, which is the person and work of Jesus, our Redeemer. Okay? So we want to focus our study, our preaching, our confessions, our declarations on the things that matter most to God. One of the pastors of uh, one of the largest churches in America, I read several books on him uh, and his preaching philosophy because he's just an amazing communicator. He really is. I mean, you don't get a 20,000-member church by being a lousy preacher, right? And this is what he says. He says, you know, when I'm building my crap series, I ask, what are the most important things to people, right? What are on the hearts of people today? Because I need to speak into that. I need to engage that. What are people worried about? What are people excited about? What are people afraid about? And, and really just crafting his series upon the things that matter most to us. Does that sound right? Or should our preaching and should our worship reflect the things that matter most to God? And as much as we'd like to say, oh, those are two and the same, they're not. Right? There are so many things that matter so much to us that make no difference in the kingdom of God, right? They're so temporal, they're so vain, they're so fleeting. We make such idols of them, and they are so meaningless when it comes to eternity, so meaningless when it comes to God's kingdom. Should worship be about the most important things to you, or should our worship be about the most important things to God? We'll take the latter. Dialogic, worship should be dialogic. Okay? And this means that in worship, God speaks and God listens. Okay? God speaks and God listens. And I think each of us will fall into one of the other camps. Okay? You come to service and you're like, yeah, you're, you're ready to hear God. You're waiting for a word. You're waiting for something challenging and inspiration, inspirational. You want God to speak to you. And so you're used to coming to service and wanting God to speak. What's unfamiliar to you is the reality that God actually listens to you. He's listening to you. He's hearing your prayers. He's delighting in your singing. He sees your heart. Okay? And I think for many of us, uh, we really like emphasize one or the other. Other people, they're like, oh, you know, you, you just want to come and unload. You have these prayers. You have these burdens. You have things that you want to say, things that you want to cry out to. And in the midst of all of your talking... And asking and crying out, you're actually not listening at all. And you don't realize that God is actually speaking to you through all of these, as all of these facets of worship. Worship is dialogic. God speaks, God listens. Through the different elements of worship, he's speaking to us, revealing to us his heart and his truth, and he's interacting with us. And throughout our service, we have opportunities to listen to God and to speak back to him to sing back to him, to respond to him, to pray to him. And it's an amazing gift to know that God is listening to us in love. Did you think about that today as you were singing? You know, not just trying to like harmonize because Dag sounds so good and you're trying to match with him. 
You know, not just praying because you're trying to like say the right words and just follow along in the, in the rhythm and pattern of our service, but as you were worshiping and singing and speaking, were you aware, truly aware, that God is listening to you with the Father's heart, with love and compassion, right? He's present with you. I think we often forget that. Worship's covenantal. Worship rehearses God's promises to us, and it allows us to receive those promises and recommit ourselves to him as his people. You see, a covenant is not just a contract. In a contract, you have to keep up your end of the bargain to kind of maintain the agreement, maintain the relationship. But a covenant is not a contract, okay? It's something so much deeper, so much greater, so much stronger. And you and I, we are in a covenant with God that has been secured by the bloodshed work of Jesus. And that means we can come secure. We can come with our sins. We can come as people who fall short and we're not condemned because Jesus bore all of that condemnation and wrath upon his body on the cross for us. We are the covenant people of God and worship is a reminder and a renewal of that covenant every Sunday. Worship is Trinitarian, and I love this one, okay? I love this, okay? It means that it's not just about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By Trinitarian worship, it means that we worship by the power and work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, friends, as we worship, we remember that we have been reconciled to God, our Father in heaven, through Jesus Christ, through the righteousness and blood of Jesus Christ, by the work of God, the Holy Spirit. You see, all three persons in the Trinity are active during worship, active to draw us closer to God, active to, to, to liberate us from our sins, liberate us from our own addictions and in our idols. Worship is not just like tit for tat. It's not just God doing his part and us doing ours. Everything we do in worship is a response to God. And those things are inspired by him and empowered by him. 1 Corinthians 12, okay? Paul's writing uh, about worship and, and, and our relationship and confessing Jesus. And he's talking about uh, even different things like spiritual warfare. But in verse 3, he points to this kind of Trinitarian aspect of worship. Very clearly, the Apostle Paul writes this. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So think about that. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Paul's talking about how the Holy Spirit is helping us and assisting us and empowering us in worship. The Spirit is leading us to sing. The Holy Spirit gives us ears to hear God. The Holy Spirit shows us our sin, and he helps us as we pray. Brothers and sisters, when we gather in worship, we must depend and, and lean on the work of God as your help, as your guide, as your strength. Don't just come in here and say, I've got to do it. I've got to sing my song. I've got to pray these words. I've got to focus on God. I've got to do it so that he will now bless me. No, that's, that's a contract. That's works. But no, in Trinitarian, gospel-shaped worship, God is not only the object of worship, he's also the agent of worship. He's working in us and through us all for his glory and for our sanctification and discipleship. Number five, I'm gonna go faster. Uh, communal 
Worship's communal. It's first person plural. We do this together, okay? It's not just individual. And so that's why, actually, why we don't turn off all the lights. I know some places you go to worship and you're like, you know, like, it's so dark. It's like a nightclub, right? And the reason why is because they want you just to like be in, feel isolation. It's just you and God. Just you and God. Go, just draw near to him. Be intimate. Just let everyone fade away. Ignore them. Just focus on God. Biblical worship doesn't ignore the people around you, right? We're communal. The church is called the assembly. We're the body of Christ, right? And so, yeah, the lights aren't on full bright, but we have them up enough so that you can actually see one another. We have the music set at a volume where you can actually hear one another singing. Worship is communal. We need to embrace that and understand that that is what God desires for his people. It's hospitable and caring. In worship, we demonstrate care for others and care for this world. That's especially reflected through our prayers. As we have congregational prayer, the reason why we bring somebody up and have them pray, it's not just because we're like going through the motions and that's what the Korean church does and we just kind of adapted it. No, it's, it's representative prayer and we encourage all of those people to, to pray not just for the service, but to pray for the world. And we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for our communities. We pray for um, yeah, local nonprofits. We pray for the gospel to go out right, from here to the ends of the earth. We want to be a communal church. We want to be hospitable and caring, and we want that to reflect in our worship. Uh, our Christian worship is not... It, uh, Christian worship is in, but not of the world. It's in, but not of the world, okay? So worship does reflect our culture. There's a reason why in the South, that church was rocking Van Halen, and it probably wouldn't work right out here, right? Um, because, you know, there's a different culture. Worship in America will have a different cultural contour than worship in Asia, Latin America, and Africa. You see it in our language. You'll see it in our music. You'll see it in various other expressions, Okay? Uh, those things are fine. Those things are good. They're beautiful. But worship must, must never be enslaved to culture. And we must have the courage to critique our culture when it runs contrary to the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So yes, yeah. Uh, culture affects worship, but we never want our culture to be enslaved by culture. All right? And we need to have the courage to speak out against it and to critique our culture. And this primarily happens through the preaching of God's word the preaching of God's word. Um, finally, uh, number eight, a generous and out, uh, excellent outpouring of ourselves before God. Okay? Christian worship should reflect a generous and excellent outpouring of ourselves before God. Worship should be neither stingy nor lazy. God calls us to give him our first fruits. Right? Give him our first fruits. Whether it's in our finances, our time, our affections, our passions, and our service, God deserves our best our first fruits, and this is one way we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There should be generosity in worship. There should be excellent in worship, not because you and I are perfectionists, not because we're elitists, but because God's worthy of it. God's worthy of that. So where do these things show up in our service? Okay? I'm going to briefly break down the elements, okay? because these, these values, these principles of worship are woven throughout our liturgy. In the call to worship, we are reminded that God speaks to us and invites us into his presence. It is God speaking. And if you just kind of pause and think about the word of God, I mean, it's the same word 
that speaks creation into being. The same word that out of the darkness said, let there be light, and there was light. That same word speaks to us and invites us to come and to worship him. Is that not dramatic? Is that not, is that not powerful and moving? And that's why we begin with the call to worship, because when there was nothing, God spoke. When you and I are not ready to worship, when you and I have been in sin the entire week, when you and I had, had fights with our wives and were angry with our kids on the way to worship, our hearts are a wreck, and we're in no place to be righteous before God. In our sin, God speaks, and he calls us. In our darkness, he speaks, and he says, come. Come find rest in me. Come receive forgiveness of sins. Come. You are my beloved. That's why we begin with the call to worship. If you've never heard it, you've never come on time to service, we'd love for you to join us at 9.30 and 11.30. It's dramatic and beautiful. As we sing, our worship team is encouraged to sing songs that reflect Christ and God-centeredness. And that does affect, I have conversations with Dak all the time. There will be some songs that musically are so beautiful, so epic. And then we look at the words and we realize that, that they're not as God-honoring as they ought to be. They're not as biblical. They're not as gospel-shaped as they ought to be. They actually say a little bit too much about us. They focus a little bit too much about us. And so as beautiful as the music is, we just leave it on the iPod. Oh, Spotify, background music, right? But it's not right for corporate worship because we want our singing to reflect Christ and God-centeredness. As we confess our sins, we are speaking truthfully to God, acknowledging his holiness and our waywardness. Okay? This is such an important time. This is one of the key places where our worship service is gospel-shaped. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. During my study break, I visited a church, a modern church, a big, growing, dynamic church, a church that is trending upward, and there was no confession of sin. There was no mention of sin. And I put this on my Facebook. What the modern church has done is replace the language of sin with stories of sorrow, okay? So it's not about you and I being idolaters. It's not about you and I falling short of the glory of God. It's now about you and I going through hard times. It's about you and I struggling with difficult circumstances and living in fear. And the message of Jesus to the modern church has become Jesus will rescue you. Jesus is your hero. You trust in him, he will not let you down. He will get you out of that sorrow. He will get you out of that circumstance. He will get you out of that struggle. And then the preacher had the audacity to say, if you, if you believe in that, if you want to give your life to Christ, stand up. There was no language of sin, no call to repentance. It was just, if you have a problem, call on Jesus. And if you're ready for that, stand. That's not the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's not the gospel. We are called to confess our sins, repent, to turn away, to take off our cross and follow after Jesus. It's about seeing Jesus, he who knew no sin, but he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. We can't be afraid to talk about sin. 
We are all guilty. Actually, if you've ever watched this uh, TV show called um, True Detective, True Detective, it's a little racy, and so, you know, for the pure, do not watch it. For the wretched, you probably have already seen it. Um, But Matthew McConaughey, he's a, a, a detective, and he is an expert. He's an expert interrogator. He's an expert interrogator, and he's just able to, like, break a person down and get them to confess right? Serial killers, right? right? And like the worst types of criminals, he just breaks them down and they confess. And one of the officers, detectives, is like, how do you do it? How do you get these people to confess? And this is what he says. He says, look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty, especially. And everybody's guilty. And everybody's guilty. There's something so true to that. There's something very kind of like like gospel-esque to that reality. We are all sinners, right? And church is not about denying that reality. The, The church is about coming together as sinful, broken, wayward people, imperfect people, and worshiping a perfect God and celebrating the story of redemption, celebrating the hope that we have, not that that we can be a better version of ourselves, but the hope that we have in Jesus Christ who has loved us to the point of death, Jesus Christ who is our redeemer, Jesus Christ who rose from the grave on the third day and defeated sin, right, and liberates us from sin. And after that, we receive the assurance of pardon. Such a beautiful moment, guys, because we are reminded that as we confess our sins, we're not left in our sins. But as we celebrate and remember the person and work of Jesus, we take hold of the promises offered to us in grace through Christ. We are assured of God's love and we can find rest as his beloved children. Every Sunday, you are reminded of your identity in Christ. Every Sunday, you are reminded that God has accepted you. He has adopted you on the merit and work of Jesus So you can stand in the presence of God. You can stand before the throne of God and not be destroyed. You can stand and you can be loved and accepted. As we pray, we lift up the needs of the church, the needs of others. We pray for God's kingdom to come and his his will to be done. And then we greet one another. And a lot of you guys probably think, oh, that's just like to give Pastor Mike a couple minutes or a couple seconds to go up on stage and in like a transitional thing. But there's, there's something intel, in, intentional about our greeting time. We remember that we're worshiping together. That the person next to you, even though they may be a stranger, you know, they have a name and they are your brother and sister in Christ. And, and, and we want to experience this communal aspect, this communal call to worship as a family. As the word is preached, we critique our culture we expose our idols, we proclaim the gospel, and our, we are reminded of the life that God has called us to live as his people. We respond to the word with prayer. We respond with singing. We respond with taking the sacraments, all as expressions of faith and trust in the gospel. And finally, we close with a benediction. All right, we close with a benediction, and it's where you receive the blessing of God where you remember that that Jesus has sent us out. He has commissioned all of us to be salt and light, not just the few missional, missionary type of people. Every single one of us, as followers of Jesus, we are sent out 
Jesus commissions us. He blesses us. And he sends us, but he's also going with us. Right? He goes with us, and he will never forsake us. James Smith, regarding worship, this is what he writes. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It's where God does something to us. That's my desire for our church every Sunday, that we would experience God, not just in a sentimental way, not in just a shallow commercial way, but we would truly experience God recalibrating our hearts with his heart. God reorienting our loves away from ourselves, away from this world and towards God and his kingdom. And it's in those moments and it's in those ways that if we can do that and we can be mindful of that and experience that, we will be growing as disciples of Jesus Christ. That is the direction God wants for each and every one of us. Let's be that kind of church, all nations. Let's experience that kind of worship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have not only called us to worship you, but you have taught us and you've shown us how to worship. We thank you that you know our struggles with worship. You know that, that, that there are sins that weigh us down. There's guilt. We sense barriers and blockage. But God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who helps us. We thank you that you help us in worship. Spirit, we thank you that you intercede on our behalf, that you guide us, that you shine light upon our hearts and our minds. And so, Lord, in those ways, would we truly experience a spirit-filled, spirit-led worship. God, would you help us all to be the kind of worshipers that honor you, that you desire for us to be, people who worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.